Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. Our show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. The library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the new name Seniors Straight Talk and can be downloaded on all popular podcast platforms. Please remember to like, click and share our episodes. You can hear short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. When visiting the channel, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to Senior News for today. I now have two courses which can be found on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners feeling stressed, stretched, and overwhelmed, Resilience Toolbox Secrets can help you recharge, reset, and recommit as you face life's challenges. And for family members considering taking on the role of caregivers or those just beginning the caregiver journey, you can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I appreciate your support and hope you'll help spread the word on this all-important topic. Senior Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And before we begin, I also want to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now it's my utmost pleasure to introduce today's guest, Richard Eisenberg, who's managing editor of the PBS site for people 50 years of age and above, nextavenue.org, where he is also editor of the site's money and policy and work and purpose channels. He's also a frequent blogger for Next Avenue. Eisenberg was part of Next Avenue's launch team in 2011, and previously, he served as executive editor of Money Magazine, front page finance editor at Yahoo, and special projects director, money editor at Good Housekeeping. He's the author of two books, How to Avoid a Midlife Financial Crisis and The Money Book of Personal Finance. He graduated from Northwestern University's Media School of Journalism and lives in New Jersey. So hi, Richard. I'm so happy to have you here today. Hi, Phyllis. Nice to be here. Thank you. So I thought first and foremost, uh, listeners who may not be familiar with what PBS stands for, maybe you'd like to explain what that is and what the platform is all about. Sure thing. 
so PBS is the public broadcasting system, and most people know it from television. Um, you may have watched Sesame Street on it or Masterpiece Theater or any one of the wonderful great shows, Downton Abbey. Uh, but Next Avenue is a website from uh, the PBS station based in St. Paul, Minnesota, TPT Television. And Next Avenue is a site that started in 2012. As you say, it's a website for people over 50. And we're publishing new articles every day uh, about money, about work, about uh, living, about health, and about caregiving. And we encourage people to come visit us. It's a free website. It's open to everybody. Uh, And we publish two newsletters every week that let people know what stories we've done recently, if you want to find us that way, or on Twitter, or Facebook, or LinkedIn. Oh, great. So what are the, um, what are, how would people find you on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook? Are there particular, I'll ask at the end as well, but maybe since you mentioned it, you just want to um, let listeners know up front. Sure. So the website is Next Avenue. The the URL, if you were going to go to the website, is nextavenue.org, O-R-G. And you can just find us on any social media platform just by putting in Next Avenue, and you should quickly be able to find us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And I also have my own uh, personal uh, Twitter account, which is richeyes315, and I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, and feel free to follow me there, and I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that sounds great. So since you cover all these different topics, what would you say are the trends or people's concerns about, and and this is a a pretty broad question, we could get into the specifics in each area uh, during the time today, but about health, money, policy, and purpose as they approach or near or even surpass what we think of as retirement age, although I don't know if that's uh, so tried and true anymore, but we could talk about that as well. Uh, well, there's so much to talk about. Uh, and of course, the pandemic has changed things in so many ways for so many of us uh, who are either are approaching retirement or in retirement or deciding we're not going to be retiring. Uh, some people have found that they are going to be working longer because of the effect that the pandemic has had on their finances and their job situation. And others are actually taking early retirement earlier than they wanted to, uh, often because they've lost a job or they've been furloughed and they feel like they won't be able to get a new one. So, so that is a big issue from a financial standpoint. From a health and caregiving standpoint, uh, as much of a Uh, concern as the pandemic is for people in their 50s and 60s, it's even more so for their parents. And so we write a lot on Next Avenue about um, the pandemic and people in nursing homes, assisted living, people living at home, aging in place, uh, and what you can do to be helpful for your parents. Actually, absolutely, because you were kind enough to just publish an opinion piece that I wrote about the treatment and the dignity that our parents receive or should be receiving or are not receiving. And my, my expertise is in the area of nursing homes. So I bring that to everything I write, but it is a much more global issue than that. Talking about uh, working though, and people being furloughed and, and maybe not being able to get another position. I know AARP has an initiative about age discrimination in the workplace and have people, uh, Are you aware that people are finding maybe it's a little better now uh, because of those initiatives? Um, I'm sorry to say that I think it's actually a little worse right now uh, in terms of age discrimination compared to a year ago, let's say. You know, when the economy was strong before the pandemic, uh, 
employers were having a hard time finding workers because there were the unemployment rate was low and people had their choice of jobs. And so at that point, I think employers were a little more interested in and willing to talk to people over 50 as job applicants or to keep them working because they needed them more. Well, now that the economy is, is in terrible shape in many places because of the pandemic, the unemployment rate is so high. I think what employers are saying is, gee, you know, I, 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 I think I would rather go with somebody who's less expensive, maybe less of a risk to me. Uh, they're concerned about older people uh, contracting the coronavirus or perhaps mm. uh, passing it on to somebody. So I would say it's it's a harder time right now for older people to find jobs and to keep jobs than it was. And I'm hoping that once we are finished with the pandemic and the economy gets back to where it was, that things will get back to the way they were before then. You know, I uh, hadn't thought of that until you just said that about people thinking that an older person, they may be taking a risk because they may contract the virus or they may spread it. But now, of course, there are reports of younger people, especially with this new strain, being more susceptible to it. But that's a whole other conversation that we don't necessarily need to get into right now. What I've been doing a, quite a bit of reading on the older population and um, statistics about the older population. I'm wondering from your perspective also, do you think that people are entering retirement communities or thinking of retirement the same way as they had in the past? Uh, I think they are not. I think they're thinking of it in, in much different ways. And part of that is the pandemic and part of it is just um, the way the world has changed. You know, from the pandemic standpoint, I think because we've seen so many deaths uh, from coronavirus in nursing homes and assisted living uh, that are, you know, for different reasons, I think it's making people less um, likely to want to go to a nursing home or an assisted living facility or see their parents go into one for fear that something terrible might happen as a result. And so I feel like people are now going to be are more likely to try to age in place if they can, maybe that through getting through home care that way, um, uh, or perhaps an independent living um, uh, community. Um, you know, senior housing occupancy rates have been down dramatically, uh, largely, I think, because of the pandemic, but also because of the trends even before that. I think for the baby boom generation who are now in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, many of them, you know, don't approach the idea of retirement communities the way their parents' generation did. And so they are a little less willing, a little less likely to want to live in a place only with the people their age and more likely to want to stay in a place where there are people of all ages. Mm. And there is such an important aspect of this being around people of all ages and intergenerational programming, being around younger people. Well, it can bring joy. It can, <laughs> it can bring another side of it as well. I mean, I live in an area where there are people of all ages and sometimes, you know, early in the morning, kids are playing outside and they're screaming and yelling and you go, oh my goodness, like I, I did that already. But, but for, for most purposes, I mean, the intergenerational aspect of it, I think, brings so much at both ends of the equation, because that's what's really going to help the younger generation really appreciate people that are older, the wisdom they bring, the experiences they can share. So I think there is there is more of that. And I wonder what's going to happen with, or maybe you know, um, what's going to happen with a lot of these 
you know, senior living communities that they've been advertising for years where people can, and there are people may, that may still enjoy that, just uh, relaxing and, and enjoying the, the um, extracurricular, so to speak, or avocational activities that they enjoy. But uh, do you see a change in, in that area from a financial point of view? Um, I do. And I think it depends on the type of community also. I think, you know, nursing homes and assisted living facilities in general are having a much harder time financially right now than independent living and active living communities. Uh, that said, you know, the pandemic has taken the community out of retirement communities in many ways. You know, a lot of the reasons that people wanted to go to retirement communities were for being together, group meals, uh, group activities, watching movies, playing bingo, going outside, doing things together. A lot of those things they can't do right now, or at least they can't do them the way they were doing before. And so I think that is making people, you know, a little less interested in that possibility because of the of what they'd be losing now there are some communities that are doing a great job in trying to keep that sense of community in different ways through technology by going outside more where when that's possible uh, and by just changing the way things are but some are not and so i think if you're thinking about one of these you really want to see how are they adapting and are they adapting the way you'd want them to you just used a term that i really loved and and if communities of this nature, and maybe they have already, and that's why you use that term, or maybe that's just a term that you use, active living communities. I think that is a far more preferable term and maybe a more attractive term than retirement communities. What do you think? Well, it is a, it's sort of a branding term that, that I hear uh, some communities using, but it, it depends on what kind of a place it is. So that's the kind of term that you hear for places that are large with golf courses and tennis courts and swimming pools and that sort of thing, where the people there tend to be younger, which is to say more like in their 60s and 70s rather than 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, and people are there because they want to stay active in many ways. And that's a great place for some people. Uh, others, you know, for health reasons or other reasons, um, you know, either can't or don't want to do that kind of uh, life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it depends. Some of the other information I came across, which I thought was interesting, was that there seems to be an increase in education levels amongst the older population, people uh, 60s and above, that older citizens have about $1.6 trillion in spending power, almost twice the national average. Um, because they're less encumbered with family responsibilities, so they have the ability and time actually to spend and devote to themselves. What trending spending trends have you seen in that age group? Well, let's start with uh, education. You mentioned that this is a more educated um, cohort and, and that's true. And I think there are a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s who just love learning, who want to keep learning any way they can. And, and so, you know, they might've gone before the pandemic to, um, uh, OSHA lifelong learning or other kinds of uh, locations that would teach classes in person. Now that's not really possible so much. So people are getting that kind of education online virtually. And a lot of these um, offerings are switching to doing it uh, virtually and online. Uh, I wrote a piece for Next Avenue recently talking about what used to be called um, lifelong learning. Now some people are, are talking about it as longer life learning. And I love that idea because the idea there is that you know, education shouldn't stop 
when you graduate college, if you graduate college. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that's the way, in, by and large, the college system in America and society in America has thought education. But, but there are some interesting things going on where some colleges and universities are saying, no, we really want to uh, actively invite older people to take classes from us and, and not necessarily the, just the, just the fun classes that they had given in the past. Um, but actually some serious classes too, whether it's, you know, computer science or psychology or, or learning a language. Um, you know, I, I'm curious to see whether we're going to see more schools doing that. I hope that we will. Interesting that you say that because last year sometime I was doing a little bit of a, my own little research study in a way. And um, so I decided to, to, actually do some lift driving. This was way before the pandemic. And every person that I uh, got into the car, I asked them what their opinion about, what their opinion was of what an older person is, what they thought old was. And uh, I got some very interesting replies. And a couple of interesting replies that I received had to do with learning. And what it was, was these younger people had been in classes with older people, it changed their view of older people, but it also, they, what they also said is what they brought to the conversation, never, they never would have heard if it was just a class of their peers. Uh, but yeah, that, that's so true. And of course, it goes the other way around too. Um, when you're an older student in a classroom with younger students, you learn a lot from them. They're, they'll teach you about the world and things that you don't know. So, um, you know, intergenerational learning and workplaces have a lot to offer for both generations. Uh, and I love the fact that you were saying you were doing some lift driving because um, the gig economy has become, you know, a, a really interesting way for older people to find work because they may feel that they can't get hired by an employer, but they can get hired by being their own boss and working as a, whether it's a Lyft driver or some other, or dog walkers, whatever it might be, um, where you set your own hours and you are an independent contractor. Now, what you don't get is benefits. You don't get health insurance or a 401k by and large, but what you do get is the opportunity to um, earn some extra money, get out of the home sometimes, or maybe doing it from your home these days, um, and uh, and stay occupied and, and keep mentally engaged. And, and those are all things that a lot of older people are looking for. When you say that, also, I'm thinking that the many times that I've gone even to a place like Home Depot, uh, I guess this is my own personal um, prejudice in a way. And I don't think it's because of my age, but maybe it is. You know, you could tell me if you think it's because of my age. But when I see an older person working there, uh, sometimes I feel that I'll get more reliable information or they'll have more experience. It depends on the problem that I have. I mean, if I'm just going in to buy a screwdriver, you know, that might be one thing. But if I have a different kind of issue or project or problem that I'm trying to solve and I see an older person working in a particular department, I feel like I may be able to get more information. Maybe they have more experience with this particular thing. I don't know. Maybe that's just a prejudice. What do you think? I think that's often true, not always true, but I do think that, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for um, having extra years in your life and things that you learn along the way, and then you can pass it on to people, whether you're working in a store or being a mentor. Yeah, that's true. Uh, You know, the other thing that struck me is that when you become what we call a retiree, you know, uh, well, it used to be 65, 
And I don't know if that's such a hard and fast rule anymore. If people think of 65 as retirement age or 62, maybe it depends on the, the, uh, the work that you were doing. But once you become, once you move into that bracket, that's a bracket that you remain in as opposed to when you're younger and you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're kind of moving from one decade to another. And nobody, I don't think, really identifies you as, in, as being in one particular, at one particular level and staying there. You're, you're moving. But once you become a retiree or of retirement age, you're kind of in that group for the rest of your days. How do you think that impacts people? Well, you know, the, the transition to retirement can be exciting for some people, but also very challenging for some people. And I'm not even talking about the financial part of it. I'm talking about the mental, the psychic part of it. There, there are a lot of people, and, and I've read some interesting books recently. There was one by an author named Richard Haydock, who just wrote a great book called Shifting Gears, where he interviewed 50 baby boomers who just transitioned into retirement, talking about what it's like. And what he found, and others have found, is that there are some people who start wondering, well, who am I now? You know, they're, they're used to having spent their whole career thinking of themselves through their job, maybe the status of the title that they had, uh, and now they've lost that title and they are losing their identity a little bit. And, and so they've got to find what their new identity is. And sometimes that can be fun to try to figure that out, but sometimes it can be scary too. Yeah, I think that uh, we... As an older person, you know, I just did a, uh, a presentation the other day on resilience. And uh, one of the people on the, there were about 80 people in the presentation. And one of these people said, one of the people said, what do I feel about the fact that I just turned 60 and I feel old? And so I had a conversation and I wrote about that in my book also. And I'm sure you could speak on this, that we internalize that from, from, an entire lifetime of our society, whether it's the words we use or the attitudes towards older people. So it's just what then we, we tend to take that in. And I, I mean, many people have said once their kids, let's say, go off to college or they have families of their own, especially women, feel like they've lost their purpose. Uh, yeah, you know, ageism is pervasive in the society here and all over the world. And sometimes even those of us who are older have ageist tendencies when, when, and we don't even realize it. And sometimes we self-sabotage ourselves. We mm -hmm. say, well, I can't get a job because I'm too old. And, you know, it, it, it will be harder to get a job probably when you're older than younger because of the discrimination by some employers, but it's not impossible. And I, I encourage people not to say that you can't do something because of your age. Now, there may, may be things you can't do for health reasons that you don't have, you know, the ability to do certain things. That's, that's one thing. But, Putting that aside, uh, in, in many cases, there are things you can do just as well, if not better, now that you're at this age than when you were in your 30s or 40s. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I have an issue with the word old. I talk about this a lot. It's always reinforced in our language, in our culture from the time we're little. And we don't think much about it when you're one or two or three or four. And you, or, you know, when you say to some, a child who's one, two or three, how old are you? It, we don't really think anything of it. But the reality is the word old is always reinforced in our language, where in other cultures, they may say something like, how many years do you have? Or what year are you in? And I, I find that so much more respectful 
than saying, how old are you? Because old just says, well, gee, I am, I'm, I'm old. I'm 65 years old. I'm 70 years old. You're always saying old. Right. Well, and then, we're, all, we're all aging, no matter how old we right. are, for seven or 70. Uh, some countries, some societies around the world use the word elders. Um, right. Use that as a form of respect. Uh, I wrote an article for Next Avenue or a few articles about the blue zones around the world. These mm-hmm. are the five places where people live the longest. Right. And, the and in all those cases, except for the one in the United States, um, those are societies that really respect older people and think of them as elders. Here in the United States, not so much. I mean, there are some people who will view things that way, but not that many people do. And I'd like to see more of that. Um, There's a fellow named Chip Conley who started what's called the Modern Elder Academy, and he calls himself a modern elder. He's in his 50s, um, and he wrote a really great book about this. Uh, And he it came to him because he started working at Airbnb a few years ago and they brought him on specifically because he was older than most of the people working there. And they wanted somebody who could bring the experience and, um, and the background that he had. And he enjoyed that, but he learned that he needed to learn their world. They, they need to learn a little from him too. You know, it's interesting that you said the word elder because I don't know if you know this, but Uh, This was my third book. And the second book I wrote was Overdue Quality Care for Our Elder Citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, because, yes, I really do think of people in their older years as elder citizens. And I've said this many times that when I was even in my 50s and well, now I'm 68. I just turned 68 last week. But I would I would meet people in a nursing home when I was working in nursing homes full time. And I would say, let's say if I was 55 or even when I turned 60 and I'd meet somebody who's 70 or 75 and I'd ask their age and they'd ask mine. I say, well, I'm, I'm nearer than further. I'm closer to you than you think. And when I'd state my age, they would say, oh, you're just a kid. And so I learned how relative that really is that at 68, if somebody is, you know, 78 or 83, they were 15 when I was born. They really, it's all relative. I I really am a kid to them. Right, exactly. I really am. You know, at this this juncture, I think it would be great for us to take a break on Senior Straight Talk and we'll return in a few minutes where we'll, we'll continue this phenomenal conversation we're having with Richard Eisenberg from Next Avenue. So we'll be back in a few. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. 
Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with Richard Eisenberg. We're having a phenomenal conversation about um, everything senior, I'll say, um, the senior population, what their interests are, what the trends are, what what their passions are, possibly, um, because uh, Richard is the editor of Next Avenue, which is a wonderful digital publication that really covers all of these areas. So I mentioned um, and one part of what we were talking about earlier about spending trends for older people, because they, they do really represent a, a large uh large purchasing power in this, uh, in this country. So what have you seen in terms of spending trends or, and you mentioned in the break when I said what we were going to talk about, how are people marketing to, to older people? You know, it's interesting. Um, people over 50, according to AARP, you know, are, are the largest consuming group in America in terms of purchasing power and spending. Um, and yet, you rarely see marketers and, and brands talking to them, uh, at least talking to them in, in a good way. They're often, if they talk about, if they show them at all, they're often lampooning them on commercials. Um, and, and it's a little surprising that considering how much money people have overall, that the brands and the marketers aren't trying to talk to them more to get them to buy from them. They tend to want to market to people in their 20s and 30s. And that's the way it's always been. And, and when today's boomers were in their 20s and 30s, that was the, they were the generation being talked to, the, the Pepsi generation back then. Right. Uh, now that they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s, marketers are less interested in them. Now, I, I think that's starting to change because I think the brands realize that they can't afford to uh, lose those people. They, uh, you know, if, if the those consumers don't see something good from a brand uh, or are offended by something, they'll switch. They'll go someplace else. You know, it used to be that marketers and still some do think that, well, people, once they make their decisions about their brands, they stick with them and they'll be with them forever. Mm-hmm. You can never get them to change. That's not true. I think there are a lot of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who want the best product and service that they can find and want ones that they feel speak to them. And if that means a new one that's different than the one they've been using for 20 or 30 years, that's fine. In fact, I think that in many cases, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s are looking for new brands and new products and services to try out because they are, they're in a rut. And so if they are in the supermarket and they see a kind of food they've never had before, they want to see what it's like. 
I think that's true. I've read statistics uh, that the typical profile of the over 50 internet user is is a 57-year-old grandparent, I don't think I said that right, who owns a car, has a higher than average education level, and has a yearly household income in excess of $60,000 a year. But I also read another statistic that I actually told the car dealership that I was in last week that 50% uh, of luxury automobiles in this country are purchased by people 50 years of age and above. Yeah, you know, it's it's tricky to generalize about populations by age and spending power because it's it's such a diverse group. You know, there are certainly people that you're describing who have the ability to afford to buy luxury cars, and I'm happy for them. But we also know that there are millions of people in their 60s and 70s and 80s who are in, in or near poverty, hmm. uh, who are barely able to make it from month to month, who are living on Social Security entirely or mostly. Um, and so, you know, we need to remember this is a, a, a broad range and people have different abilities and needs and interests and, and they all need to be served in different ways. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking um, because I think many people make the mistake of thinking that older people or elders, we'll say, uh, don't shop online, that they don't know much about uh, the Internet, that they don't have iPhones. I will say, and I talk about this frequently, so my daughter is 40 and my son is 36. And um, actually something happened interesting in the last couple of days when I spoke with my daughter. So a few years ago, uh, my phone, I have an, I had an iPhone 8 then, I think, at the time, and it wasn't keeping the charge, and I, I was complaining about that. So my kids would say, so this is just a few years ago, oh, you don't know how to work a phone, you don't know how to charge a phone. You know, I'm sure many of us who have children of a certain, gen, a certain age find that they say these things to us. Um, and I, I would say, like, I don't know how to work a phone, like, or I don't know how to charge a phone. Now, I, I, of course, they know I do, but it, but it was, a, it, it did have an ageist component to it, really. Well, anyway, uh, yesterday, my daughter was telling me, I'm laughing as I'm saying it, I, I can't help it. I was hysterical on the phone talking with her that, gee, she doesn't know what happened. All of a sudden, her phone keeps <laughs> dropping calls, and she doesn't know what happened. And so I, you know, just kind of spit those same words back at her. And so, well, well, maybe you don't know how to work a phone. Of course, she said, very funny. I said, but but you see, when when the when I had trouble keeping the charge on my phone, and then it actually came out that they were doing something with the batteries of the phone. Um, well, then, of course, it became a different conversation because, but I think that it's so ingrained in our culture, even though it seems like a funny thing, it's funny and it's not funny. So when you're talking about marketing, yesterday I saw a commercial. I know the intent of the commercial. I get it. However, it did border on something that was a, was really ageist and it really touched on this. So um, it's this woman probably in her 50s. She looks like she's possibly in her 50s, maybe 60s. I don't really know. And there's a young girl uh, who looks like she may be in her 20s, let's say. And the girl is crying because she broke up with her boyfriend. And so the looks like it's her mother. And she says, okay, let's take off the sweatshirt and let's you know, put away all the pictures so you never have to look at his face again. And the girl says, the young gal says, you don't understand he's tagged in 
400 of my social media posts. And so the woman says, the, the mother says, well, I could cut out those tags for you. And so the young girl says, well, it doesn't work that way. And so, I mean, it was cute, but on the other hand, it, it actually touched me. It was bordering on, so what, it, it's kind of like what, what my daughter said to me or what my kids would say that I can't keep a charge on a phone. And what do you think about that? Um, you know, I am offended by some commercials. I've seen that one. That didn't bother me so much because I thought it was a little playful. I also think that even though a, a lot of people in their uh, 60s and 70s use social media, not all of them might know what it means to be tagged in a photo. So that didn't bother me so much. If, if it was about, like, you don't know how to use a computer or you don't know what the Internet is, I think I would have been more offended. Mm, okay, that makes sense. But I, listen, different things strike us uh, for different reasons. There was a playful element to it. I get it. And like I said, I understood the purpose of the commercial and what it was saying was you don't have to be a perfect parent um, and you could adopt a child. And that's what it was saying. And I got the message, but it did. Um, it just just kind of hit me uh, that way. So. Um, of the people that are of of the people that are shopping online and, and the people that do, because it, I, I did read something that says 25 percent of all seniors have an iPhone. Mm -hmm. So if they have an iPhone, um, in all likelihood, they have access to the internet. Not many, not everybody may use it that way, but they, they do have access to it. And, and actually, I think it's, uh, I read something that says more may use Facebook than other, than other social, social media platforms. Although I think, um, I think YouTube is becoming more popular. I think Instagram is becoming more popular. Pinterest certainly is. They, it depends on what they're doing with their lives, whether they use LinkedIn or not. I think more and more are using Twitter um, because you can really engage with people in conversations in an interesting way. So, so what do you think about that? Do you see any trends with people purchasing in certain areas as opposed to other areas if, if they're online purchasing? Sure. Well, you know, I think we have to be, we should talk a little bit about sort of which ages we're talking about. So, you know, certainly people in their 50s and 60s, and I would say uh, early 70s are very familiar with with iPhones and smartphones and the internet. And for them, it's, you know, for many of them, it's a part of their daily lives. For people, I would say in their late 70s and 80s, maybe less so. Um, of the social media platforms, Facebook is, is the pri primary one for people, um, older Americans, I would say, um, and becoming less of appealing to younger people, partly because their parents and grandparents are using it, maybe. Um, Twitter, um, for all the attention that Twitter gets in the media, the reality is um, only only about between 10 and 15% of Americans actually use Twitter. Um, so it gets a little more attention than maybe it deserves for the actual use of it. Um, I use it a lot uh, for my work, um, but there are a lot of people who don't use it at all. Um, and, you know, Pinterest is sort of a, uh, a, a niche platform. You know, if you're interested in, in things like, what they put on there, then you may find it really appealing. And then if you're not, you're not, uh, you know, as far as online spending, I think these days by and large for many people spending online versus spending in the store 
There's no real difference. It's just a matter of sort of where you want to go to get what what it is that you want to get and how quickly you want to get it. And these days in the pandemic, I think a lot of us now are shopping online more than going out to stores because it's safer for us and or we may not even be able to go to the stores. So um, in some cases we're, we're I, I won't say forced into shopping online, but it just becomes a preference for more of us. You know, I think it's interesting because thinking back several years ago and obviously purchasing online has really talk about booming has really boomed in in i'd say the last five seven years um wouldn't you say but i remember when buying online first started and and my daughter would say to me why don't you buy online and i was like oh i prefer to be in a store and touch it and feel it whatever you know for certain items i guess and now um you know i've changed it's more convenient. It's it's sure. just it's just more convenient, and it was intended to be that. Of course, that has a different effect on on you know our our local communities and and local shopping. But that's another matter. I did read someplace that it said that um, more people that are in an older age bracket uh, say that they use you know the net. Let's say more for investing purposes. Uh, rather than people that are younger. I mean, have you seen that trend? Do you see anything about that anywhere? Yeah, well, you know, I've actually seen, I would say the reverse. Uh, what I'm saying What I'm saying is younger people more than older people are using robo-advisors. These are basically using um, technology to manage your money for you by choosing where to put your money and allocating it differently. Um, some older people are using them, but mostly the robo advisors have only been courting younger people. And again, I feel like they've missed an opportunity and mm. some of them are starting to look for older customers, but many of them are not. Um, there are new, there's some new investing platforms like Robinhood that are specifically targeting younger people to invest in. What they're saying is basically, you don't need to have a lot of money to buy stocks with us because you know, if you can't afford a, a stock that's selling for $400, you can buy a piece of that for $50 or $100. And, and they're sometimes making it seem like it's a game. And mm. so some people are getting hooked on investing because they think it's fun. And when the stock market's going up, it seems like you can only make money. Well, the reality <laughs> is for those of us who've been around for a while know that the stock market can go up, it can also go down and sometimes <laughs> go down precipitously. Right. precipitously. I, I think being in the stock market is a very good idea for some of your money for the long term, but it fluctuates. And I think some younger people may be surprised when they when they see the market take a turn and they haven't seen that before because they will be surprised that that's that can happen too. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely it's what you're saying. Oh, and, and I'm 68. I don't know your age, but we certainly have lived through trends, ups and downs, and ups and downs, and and. Uh, so yeah, that would be a, a false way of thinking or wrong thinking. And like you say, if, if they make it a game, you know, that, that may be the wrong, the wrong message to be sending, but I guess that's not for us to, uh, not for us to figure out. But um, in terms of uh, what about, we, we did touch on this in the beginning. And of course, as I said, coming from the nursing home space, because I've worked in about 50 nursing homes, that most people are, are preferring not to go to some kind of long-term care living situation now because of the pandemic. And I, I am going to explore this in, in future episodes with, with other people, but do you see any trends in that industry from your perspective? 
Well, I, the first trend I see is I think that we're going to see some nursing homes go out of business because they can't financially stay in business. And I think the pandemic is part of it, but I think it mostly accelerated a trend. So uh, I expect that we're going to see some closures over the next year or so. Um, and I think that's going to be a wake-up call to the industry and also to some older uh, people about living there, which is to say, uh, you know, you really want to check out the financial health of a facility before you move into a, a community of development. Some of them are doing very well financially uh, and others are not. So that's one trend. And the other trend I think is, I think the pandemic has shown nursing homes and senior living facilities and assisted living facilities, retirement communities, that you need to be more person-centered and you also need to be more technology-centered and help your the people who live there with technology, whether that means teaching them or working with them so that they can communicate to their families, their loved ones uh, in, in ways that they need to when they can't have their loved ones come visit them. And, and I think you know, the better places have done a great job of that, but many of them have done a terrible job of that. And I think I'd like to think that this has been a wake up call to show them that they can't afford to do that that way any longer. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. It's interesting because a few years ago, I had uh, been on a podcast and the gal was talking about the fact that she was, uh, she has some kind of uh, physical disability, I'll say. And uh, so I say she was physically challenged in some way that I would prefer to say it that way. And her father was in a nursing home a distance away and she couldn't always visit him. So she got an iPad, and this is several years ago, and she would have the iPad set up for him, especially uh, for holiday situations when she couldn't visit with him. And she'd have either the meal sent to him or prepared for him, the exact meal that she was eating, the exact foods, and they would share their, if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever that holiday was, they shared that experience as best they could. And so I've been actually talking about this for a few years. Wouldn't this be a wonderful thing for all, for people in nursing homes who, who you know, have a loved one, not only somebody who just can't visit because but somebody who lives a distance away and making that part of, and actually FaceTime and all of that. Listen, I'm sure we've all had family gatherings when there's somebody, my, my son lives in California. We've had many family gatherings way before the pandemic where we'd make a FaceTime phone call and he'd see everything that was on the table and we, we'd have a chat. So, I mean, you know, hopefully there'll be more of that, but without getting into this too much, the whole staffing issue becomes part of that conversation and it makes it more challenging in nursing home environments, but that's a, you know, going in a whole other direction, but I'm glad that you brought that up about, uh, there is something you brought up that I find interesting and how would, because I have, when I uh, consult with families and I, tell them about questions to ask or what to look for. Um, I haven't talked to them about the financial health of an organization. I have more focused on the ownership of the organization because from my experience working with a lot of nursing home chains, so there are things that you should know about that particular nursing home chain. If you could find the information, you can't always. But I haven't suggested to people, so I'm so glad to hear you say that, about asking about the financial health of that organization. How would people find that out? 
it's not easy to do. Uh, it's possible to do sometimes. Now, um, it depends on whether the company is a public company. It's easier to get that information when it's a public company because you can go through their public documents um, or you could ask somebody who works there to give them to you, to share them with you. For private um, operators, it's harder because they may not reveal that sort of thing. Uh, so then the best thing that you can do is to just do whatever kind of research you can to talk to people who might know. And and that, that may be um, chat groups online. It could be people who live there or families who uh, have people who live there now to find out from them and, and to ask as many questions as you can about sort of the, sometimes even if you can't get the actual dollar amounts, like, you know, whether they are, have any, how much debt they have and that sort of thing, you can get a sense by finding out whether they've been expanding or contracting in the services they've been offered and in the staffing. And if you start finding out that they no longer do things they did before and they haven't replaced those things, or they no longer have as many people working there as they did before, and yet they still have as many people living there as they did before, that's a signal to you that, you know, there may be a financial problem here. It's interesting that you say that because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about a place that I knew um, was it an assisted living? I, I don't even re- No, I think it was a nursing home, actually. There were, there were two aspects of it on this one property, and, and one part was sold, and they, the other they, they retained. And um, then, uh, now, we happen to know, those of us who were working at the nursing home that was sold, happen to know that the reason they were sold was because they were having financial difficulties. But uh, the people that were living in that area, I think it was more of an assisted living type of situation, but they had a nursing home component, a long-term, you know, a few beds dedicated to long-term care. Uh, but the people really, I don't think, knew. And then one day they found out that um, they were going belly up. And it was a question whether the people would have to move or if they could find a buyer so that they could remain living there. Ultimately, they were able to, but I'm sure that's not the only situation where that happens. Right. And it can be a very frightening uh, position for the people who live there and for their loved ones, not knowing whether they'll be able to continue to live there. And if they aren't, where they will go to. I mean, when you move to a place like this, you often think this is where I'm going to live my days out and want to. Um, And the last thing you want is to be disrupted and told basically you've got to move uh, at a point when it's hard to do. Yeah. And I think also there. There's another element to it. I, it was an assisted living now that, uh, now that I think about it, if I remember correctly. So people were paying thousands of dollars a month to live there. They put uh, thousands of dollars. Uh, very often these places ask you to put thousands of dollars up front. Not all of them have the same fee structure, but in this particular place. And then what happened to all of that money? And so then that puts them even in a more precarious situation because then they don't have the, the funds that they thought they had to continue living out, you know, if they were going to remain there or if they required more care and then maybe had to move into a different situation. So now financially, they were also in a different situation. And that, that creates more pressures and anxieties, as, as you say. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated, um, complicated situation for people as we continue on life's journey, as people are living longer with advances in medicine and science and, um, 
and people like you say who who want to remain at home and sometimes that uh, it's not always possible people make promises those are very difficult conversations people there are uh, religious uh, expectations family expectations social expectations societal expectations i met a gal uh, right before we end i'll just i'll just uh, tell this little story. I think I've told it a couple of times. I had met a gal. She was actually a regional vice president of an assisted living uh, community in my area. And she was telling me a story that her sister lived uh, in another state a distance away and was caring for her mother. Her father had died many years previously. And her mother's care needs had increased tremendously and she, the the sister was having a very hard time keeping up with them. She had some um, she had some care at home that was helping her, but it, it really wasn't enough. And so the gal up here in my area suggested to her sister that it may be the time to move her mom into a different kind of living environment. And what her answer was, I can't because I promised. Uh, I promised our father that I would never do that, but he had passed away 15 years earlier. So I think there are so many considerations that go into this. People would like to do, you know, continue in a certain way and and things change and they may not be able to do that. And that creates a lot of um, guilt and anxiety. And that's a whole other conversation, I guess. But this has been great, Richard. I really appreciate it. You have so much knowledge and insights. And if you want to tell people again how they could reach you or Next Avenue, uh, that would be terrific. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis. Um, yeah, you can find Next Avenue at nextavenue.org, O-R-G. Uh, we publish new articles there every day. You can sign up for our free newsletters to find out what we've been writing about recently. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can email me at reisenberg, that's R-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G, at nextavenue.org. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you'll enjoy Next Avenue. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Richard. And so this is Phyllis Amon signing off for today on Senior Straight Talk. Um, I hope the listeners enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I appreciate all the valuable work you do and the, the valuable information that you, that you offered today. Please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.